Our scripture reading for the service or the sermon this morning will be from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. If you'd like to read along in a like translation, there should be a uh, NASB in the seat in front of you. Now please rise in honor of God's word as I read. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he visited them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a significant number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And they attacked the house of Jason and were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. They who stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. may be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for your word. It never returns void. Father, we thank you for the songs that have been sung and the prayers that have been prayed this morning already that have been very gospel-centered. I pray that they have been print and printed on our hearts and in our minds. And Lord, now as we open forth your word, Father, I pray that we would receive it well. Lord, as we learn the beginnings of the church of Thessalonica, Father, fill me with your spirit as I pray, and Lord, give your people ears to hear. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over here to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We find this account in Acts 16, verses 8 through 10, a little bit before our text here in chapter 17. Paul now on his second missionary journey, he's just finished strengthening the churches in Lystria and Iconium, in which were a part of his first missionary journey. And after being prompted by the Holy Spirit to bypass Asia and Bithynia, Paul receives what we refer to as the Macedonian call. So Paul and his companions, they set sail from Macedonia and they arrive in the Roman colony of Philippi and they begin to preach the gospel. 
There they find great success, but after a series of events, they find themselves thrown into prison. But of course, God had other plans for Paul and Silas, and he sends a great earthquake. And the foundations of it, they, they cause the, the chains to break. All the doors are open. The Philippian jailer, to, to kind of bypass some things, is eventually saved from these miraculous Events he and his whole out, he and his whole household. But given all that has been stirred up in, in Philippi by Paul and, and, and Silas, the leaders, they asked them to leave the city. They had actually found out that they were Roman citizens, so they apologized to them first for what they had put them through, and then they asked them to leave. So Paul and, and Silas they visit with a convert named Lydia that we learned about early on in that chapter, along with some brothers and and sisters, and then they depart with their eyes set on the city of Thessalonica within Macedonia. So a little bit about Thessalonica. It was founded in 315 B.C., and it had what I would call grandiose beginnings. It was named after the half-sister of Alexander the Great, a man who had conquered most of the known world at his time. And it was located on the Thermaic Gulf of the Aegean Sea, and it was central. It was a central location where many roads met. Now, this coupled with this impressive harbor, it made this port city the most important city in all of Macedonia. Now, not only for the adjacent world due to its trade, but also for the Apostle Paul and the potential it provided to spread the gospel both far and why? By the time we read of the city in Acts 17, it is the capital of all of Macedonia. And though it had been under Roman control for some time, they were a free city. They had an excellent relationship with Rome, and much of the culture has still remained Greek. As far as religion goes, they were polytheist. They had wor- they worshipped many idols. We see that in in First Thessalonians when we'll be looking at, at that later on in the series. But they worshipped the many idols. There was um, many idols. But there was also a large group of Jews there. They had a synagogue. And as well as other Jews, there were God-fearing Greeks, those who were sympathetic to the Jewish religion but had not joined. But as is clear, Thessalonica was a, it was a bustling city. It had much to offer, but this, this great prosperous city would soon be turned upside down by the man who was upsetting the whole world with the most controversial message the world had ever heard. The message of a poor carpenter who was Lord over Caesar and all other gods and the promised Messiah of the Jews who was cursed by hanging on a tree. And through this message, which was foolish, foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews, was born one of, if not the greatest church in all of the scriptures. A church planted and breathed out by the very breath of God. And that is the church at Thessalonica. So if you will look with me. At Acts 17, I, for some reason, um, I said one, I put in here one through eight and had the reading for that, but it should have been, it should have been one through nine. But without further ado, let's look at this. 
And, but in these verses, we're going to see how the church of Thessalonica was born out of persecution. So if you're taking notes, we're going to examine the church's beginnings. That's in Acts 17. And then Paul's concern and Timothy's report. And that is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we'll, we won't spend as much time in 1 Thessalonians. Most of it will be in Acts 17. But again, that is the church's beginnings, Paul's concern, and then Timothy's report. And hopefully there we'll see the development of Paul's reason for writing the letter of 1 Thessalonians. So chapter 17 of Acts, verse 1, it reads, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphilopolis, (laughs) I just butchered that. I actually practiced that a decent bit. But in Apollonia, and and there's no evidence that they actually preached there, but they probably just lodged there overnight. But after they had passed through, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of the Jews. And if you know anything about Paul and his missionary journeys, the first thing he always did, if there was a synagogue, he went right into it and began to preach. And he's going to do nothing different here. In fact, just for some examples, we look back. At chapter 9 in Acts, Paul has just been saved in, in Damascus, and as soon as he is able to get up, he begins, he go, he enters the synagogue in Damascus and begins to preach. It says in verses 19 and 20 of that chapter, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and he and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Chapter 13, verse 5. Now he's in Sal- Salamis. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of, the God, of, the, of God in the synagogue of the Jews. He then did the same at Antioch and at Iconium and Lystra as well. That's why Luke says it was Paul's custom to enter the synagogue at the beginning of verse 2. And what does he do there? Well, we know what he does there. He begins to preach the gospel. For three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Old Testament scriptures. They had not had the New Testament scriptures yet, so he is preaching from the Old Testament, and he is preaching Christ. And Luke puts forth what I like to call Paul's three-tier process. First, he argued from the Old Testament that the Christ, the promised Messiah, must suffer and rise from the dead. And why does he do this? Remember, what were the Jews looking for? They were, they were looking for a conquering king, one who would establish his throne and take over and overthrow Rome. He would establish his throne on earth. But, but Paul says to them that, that you've misunderstood the scriptures. You should not have been looking for a conquering king, but rather a suffering servant. And after providing, after proving this with evidence, he then points them to this Jesus of Nazareth. And he's telling them about the details of his life, about how he came and lived, living a a perfect life and all the miraculous things he did and how he's fulfilling all of scripture. And he points them to his death and then his resurrection. And then third, he puts it all together. 
He puts it all together at the end of verse 3, and he says, This Jesus whom I proclaim, this Jesus to you whom I proclaim is the Christ. He is the Christ. Not many more powerful words than that. There's really, there's no greater truth. The promised Messiah had come. And he's telling the Jews, a greater prophet than Moses has come. A greater king than David has arrived. And a greater priest than Aaron has made the once for all sacrifice for sin. The one who took upon your curse, your sin, and he hung on that tree and he rose from the dead and he calls all men everywhere to repent. That is the message that he has brought to those in Thessalonica. And he's, he's talking to the Jews. He says, stop looking for the Messiah. He has already come. If you're a Greek, tear down your idols. The Messiah, the living God, he is the one who reigns. You need to look no further. And he's telling them that now you are to bow your knee to him. And the message has not changed. The message has not changed. It is the same today just as it was back then. If we, what we read, what Paul is doing, I call it church planting 101. It's the same thing every time. He, he found a place in every town, and this time it's a, it's a synagogue. In, in Philippi, there was no synagogue, but he went and found, a, he just went and started preaching wherever he found. But he always found a place, and what does he do? He preached the gospel. He preached Christ and him crucified. That was his life. It was preaching Christ and him crucified. First, he lived Christ and him crucified, and what was built up in him could have no chance but to come out. And he preached them everywhere he went, and that's what he is doing in Thessalonica. And I'll say this, the beginnings of any true church always finds their foundation, their anchor in the proclamation of the gospel. You look everywhere at at different churches, even throughout America and maybe throughout the world, and there's so so much just nonsense going on. It's secret sensitive or how can we entertain people to get into the church and, and all these other things. But it's the preaching of the gospel. It is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. And then calling you to follow him. That is the foundation of the church. And Paul knows this. And real quick, if you're an unbeliever, I want to say to you that the same Jesus that Paul is proclaiming, I am proclaiming to you. And just as Paul told them, I'm telling you now that Christ is calling you to repent. He's calling you to repent. There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. You can't save yourself. Whatever idols you worship, whether it be yourself or or anything else in this world, cannot save you. It is Christ and Christ alone. He is the one who fulfilled Micah 5, 2, where it says that he will be born in Bethlehem. He was the suffering servant told of in Isaiah in Isaiah 53 and he was the one whose bones were broken in fulfillment of Psalm 22 and every other prophecy in the Old Testament scripture don't look any further don't look any outside of scripture look to the Christ of the scripture and follow him repent believe the gospel of Jesus Christ be like the Jews and many of the God-fearing Greeks and not a few 
of the leading women or a significant amount, as the NASB says, the leading women of the city. And put your trust and put your trust in Christ. And that is what happened in, in verse four it says, and, and some of them were persuaded. Some were persuaded. Paul came preaching the gospel and some heard. They all heard, but some took heed. They were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, some of the Jews, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. They had heard the gospel and they responded. That's what we're all called to do. And thank God those of us who are saved have responded to the gospel just as they did. And it's of little doubt that many of these converts, they were the backbone of the church in Thessalonica, along with others at whom Paul had ministered to throughout the city. But any time the gospel is proclaimed in its fullness, there's always two responses. You accept it or you reject it. And that's what's happened here. There has been a rejection as well. And in this case, a hostile rejection. In verse 5, we read that the unbelieving Jews had become jealous. And this was no surprise to Paul, as he was always being persecuted as he went into the synagogues. In Acts 13, after preaching in Damascus, what we referred to earlier, the unbelieving Jews, they stir up the leading women and men of the city to persecute both, both Paul and and Barnabas. When in Iconium, we read in Acts 14, 2, it says, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And then in Lystra, in Lystra, they beat him so bad they thought he was dead. So the, the, the brothers and sisters, they come out to, to look at Paul and they, they're thinking he's dead. But by a miracle, he rises up. And what else does he do? He gets up. He gets up after almost dying or they think he's dead and he goes back into the city and he begins to preach the gospel again. That's courage. That's boldness. And if it wasn't the Jews, it would have been the Gentiles as well. We saw in Philippi that the Gentiles were the ones persecuting Paul and Silas there. But but the point is, is that Paul continues to enter places where he knows he's going to be persecuted. He knows he's going to be persecuted for what he is proclaiming, for what he is preaching. But he does it anyway. And again, it does show his courage. It shows his boldness and it shows his love for the lost and his greater love for the gospel and the dependence on the Holy Spirit. That, that's the only way he's able to do this. It's only on full dependence of the Holy Spirit. You think Paul can, can continue going in these places, proclaiming Christ, being beaten, suffering so many. I mean, we all know how much Paul suffered. But what does he do? He continues to go and do the same thing again and again. It's not in his own power. We can't preach the gospel in our, in our own power. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we're trusting in our own flesh to share the gospel with others, to proclaim the gospel, that, that is why we are, if we're struggling, that is why we're trusting in our own flesh too much and instead of depending 
on the spirit of God, which Paul did. And I don't expect us to, or no one should expect us to live up to the exact standard of Paul. God had called him for a special purpose and equipped him in a special manner. But that does not mean we aren't to imitate him as he imitated Christ. As it's the same as the Thessalonians imitated him. As the gospel had gone, I'm jumping ahead, but the gospel had gone forth throughout Thessalonia into all the world because they were imitating Paul. And Paul was imitating Christ. And that's what we are to do. Looking back at the narrative, so angry are these unbelieving Jews. They've been losing people at their synagogue. They've been losing the the, the other Jews who I believe they're, they're losing the God-fearing Greeks. They become jealous. As I said earlier, they become jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They formed a mob. They, they, got, they gathered some, a gang, some, some thugs together from the marketplace. And the text says that they set the city in an uproar. They set the city in an uproar. So angry are they at the message and its effects. Not only the message, but its impact of the message. And looking for Paul and Silas and Timothy, Luke is not there, doesn't seem to be there at this, at this moment. Luke had traveled with them to Macedonia and and um, Timothy was there as well. Mostly Paul and Silas have been mentioned a lot, but Timothy is, is there as well. Luke has stopped at somewhere else. But Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're staying at the house of Jason. And the men of the city, they, they come looking for them, but once they get there, they can't find them. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are, are not there. And verse 6 says, And when they could not find them, They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. I I love this verse. So they get Jason. They get his. They they get some of the other brothers of the city. They're they're angry. They they dragged them before the authorities shouting. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What a powerful text. What a powerful text. The gospel had been ringing forth and they had heard of it. They had heard it because Paul he and his companions, they were proclaiming it everywhere they went. And they knew what it was stirring up. And they said, oh, no, these men have come here as well. And just as they are turning the world upside down, they are turning this city of Thessalonica upside down because of the message that they preach. I'm not sure we can hear such greater words than that if we're a believer and we get accused of turning the world upside down. That must have been great joy to Paul and to his companions, not because they were making people angry, but the the gospel was taking effect, that it was impacting the world. And we should not be personally offensive, but when we preach the gospel, the gospel 
in and of itself is offensive. It is an offensive message. It cuts at the very core of the heart of men. And I think I can say with confidence that if we were proclaiming the gospel as we should, I'm talking first to myself, but if we were proclaiming the gospel as, it, as we should with this, infi- with this offensive message that tells people of their sin, that points to Christ as the only Savior, the only one who can redeem, and that everything else they believe is wrong, then we will also be turning the world upside down. If we were preaching it as we should, in every sphere of our life, it would turn it upside down. In our families, where we work, in our neighborhoods, let's preach the gospel as it should be proclaimed and we'll see something. We'll see something. We'll see people coming to Christ. We'll see the, the power of the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of men. We'll see people who, who were the worst of sinners. All of a sudden, they, they, they change, and as, and as worse as they're a sinner, they're now taking that same energy and using it for Christ. We look at Paul's conversion. As, as zealous as Paul was for killing the Christians and, 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 what, and everything else, he was just as zealous for the proclamation, if not more, for Christ. We preach the gospel as we should. We'll see changed hearts. We'll see changed minds. But we'll also see opposition. And that's why we struggle. That's why I struggle. Because we see it's the opposition. It's the opposition that Paul is facing. That Silas is facing. We see that. And we read it and we rejoice. But then ourselves, or let me preach about myself. I read it and then I look at my own life and it's not true. That should not be. That should not be. It's not built up in me enough. I'm not saturated in it enough. Are we saturated in the word of God enough? Are we being given to prayer? Are we being given to the ministry of the word? And that first comes to the leaders. In Acts, we read that, that Paul, and not, not only Paul, but the elders, they, they, they assigned the deacons so they could give themselves to the prayer and the ministry of the word. So that's where it starts. But not only with the leaders, it trickles down. And we all are to be giving ourselves to prayer and to the word and to the scriptures and in devoting our entire lives to it and to Christ. And if we're doing that, we're doing that. I know without a, without a shadow of a doubt, what's in us will come out. It will Let's be like Paul. Let's be like Silas and Timothy and many others. If we're not already doing so, let the word of God be built up in us in such a way that we can't help but preach it. And again, there will be opposition. But that's why we must go out in the power of the Holy Spirit. If we try to go out in our own flesh, if we're not being filled with the things of God, if we're not loving one another, fellowshipping with one another, we're not going to be able to do it. We'll fold. But as we continue to look at the text, verse 7, 
they tell the leaders, the men of the city, they tell the leaders how Jason has received the, the men, that they are acting against the decrees of, of Caesar by saying that there is another king, Jesus. So again, they've dragged Jason out of his house. He's received these, these men who are bringing the gospel to Thessalonica. And they're being accused of all kinds of things, again, including that they're claiming that there is another king competing against Caesar. They were wrong. He wasn't competing against Caesar. He's Lord over Caesar. But this accusation would have set the city officials and all of Thessalonica against them. Remember, if we... If you remember earlier, I said how Thessalonia had a great relationship with that of Rome. Well, if the entire city is being persuaded towards Christ and he's king, and then you have the emperor and and Caesar is no longer Lord, but Christ is Lord, that's going to be a problem. So maybe they're thinking the free status of their city might be at stake. That might be one of the reasons that the city is so upset. This accusation of this loyalty to the emperor. But after coming to some type of agreement with the city officials, Jason and, and the other brothers, they're going to send, they, they send Paul and Silas and Timothy away at night and they move into Berea. I'll read these, these verses from the scripture. And the people, after hearing that what they said, that there is another King Jesus, is reason verse 8. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So they had taken some type of, of bond payment from them. And they they released them. And then I'm going to go into verse 10 just for a moment. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So they sent Paul, they sent Silas and, and Timothy away into the night. But it's not over there. The Thessalonians, they're, they're not satisfied, or at least the, the unbelieving Jews. They persecuted them in Thessalonica. But then they get up and they follow Paul and Silas. They follow them into Berea and they persecute them there also. So Paul then flees to Athens. And with that, the beginnings of the Thessalonian church in with Jason being dragged from his home, Paul having to depart suddenly, and the Thessalonian believers facing inevitable persecution from both the Jews as well as their own countrymen. Given these circumstances, Paul is understandably concerned about their faith. He's concerned about their faith. He's wondering, are are they persevering? Are they going to persevere this this persecution, this affliction? Or is our message in vain? Now, Paul, I mean, he's only human, but still, he he knows deep down 
that the message does not turn void. But still, it's, it's difficult as he's looking at these circumstances. And he is concerned. And his concern grows even more as he, he desires to go back to Thessalonia. He desires, he wants to see them. He wants to see the brothers and sisters, but he can't. He can't get back. So now we can look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, if you will turn there. Chapter 3 and verses 17 through 19. That should be chapter 2, excuse me. Chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. Give you a second to get there. It reads, but since we were torn away from you, since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? or our joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So Paul is thinking about how he's been torn away from them all of a sudden. But he says not in person. I mean, only in person, but not in heart. They were always on his mind. But he wants to get back to see them. He wants to encourage them. He wants to make sure that they're standing firm in the faith. But Satan hindered him from coming. He hindered him from coming. Or us. But Paul determined to hear from the Thessalonians. He says in chapter 3 verse 1. Therefore when we could bear it no longer. We were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith. And real quick, this is an aside, but it's so interesting how Timothy is God's co-worker in the gospel. That means it is God. It is God's gospel. It is him. (laughs) He's proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is being proclaimed by God through these men. He's God's co-worker. I think that's very interesting. But Timothy, who was God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. And, and why? Why? This is Paul's main concern. Paul's main concern is that no one be moved by these afflictions. So he's concerned that Satan will use the persecutions that they're facing to tempt them To be moved in their faith. We see this at the end of verse 5 of chapter 3. It says, for this reason, when I could bear no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and that our labor would be in vain. That is the source of his concern. He knew what they were facing. He was there. He knows that those angry Jews that chased him in Thessalonica are going to return back to persecute the church. I mean, that, that persecuted him when he went to, in Berea, 
are going to come back to persecute the church in Thessalonica, along with their own countrymen. So he's concerned. Are they going to, are, are they going to move? Are they going to be moved in their faith? Or are, are they going to stand strong? Are they going to stand firm? So Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to exhort them and then to report back. And it's with exceeding joy that Paul learns not only, not only are they standing firm, but they are thriving. They are thriving. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 7 says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. What a great report. It's resounding that despite the persecution, that their faith and their love for the truth and their love for the brethren was evident. It was evident. And it's also interesting, Paul is so desirous to go see them. He wants to encourage them. He's, very, he's worried about them. I have to encourage them. I have to get back. But who ends up being encouraged? And encouraged beyond measure, really, is Paul. They encourage Paul. This was a good reminder for Paul that God is sovereign. Paul knew this, but I think he needed to be reminded that God is sovereign over the church. It's him. It is him who's going to keep the church. Paul planted others water, but God gives the increase. He gave the increase. He always gives the increase. It'll also be good for us to remember this as well. God's church does not stand or fall on a single person or on a group, but on him alone. He alone will sustain the church. Yes, he works through us in, in different roles, and each one of us of the body have different gifts to come along together. But ultimately, it is on his shoulders. And church, his shoulders are broad. His shoulders Abroad, I said earlier that Thessalonians was a church that was breathed out by the breath of God, but that's true of all churches, all true churches. They're all breathed out by God. It's his church. If you're a church that, that has people who have been chosen by God, who have been redeemed, are walking in the power of the spirit, being sanctified day by day. Meeting together, practicing baptisms, practicing the Lord's Supper, practicing the preaching of the gospel and their elders with deacons. You are a God-breathed church. This is a God-breathed church. We have a good model of a church to look at in Thessalonians. And as he tells when we'll read through 1 Thessalonians, we'll see Paul will tell them, he's encouraging them. He, he, he's telling them to do these things. He, he's saying you're already do, doing them, but do them more. And that is what I will say to us this morning. We're already doing what God has called us to do. But let's do it more. 
and more. But this is the context that Paul writes to the Thessalonians in. He's in the, in the midst of ministering in Corinth. So we know the challenges that that presented. So he needs to be encouraged. So this came at the right time, this report. But as Paul is ministering there, he is blessed to sit down and pen this letter to the young church. And Thessalonians, a church that was born out of persecution and affliction. So as we close, I'll just finish with telling us over the next coming over the coming weeks. We're going to be going through this book. Or this letter. Pastor Dave had planned to go through First Thessalonians. This is the next one we were going to go through. So we have decided to do that as well. We believe the spirit is leading us in that way. So that's where we are. And in this letter, we're going to see. We're not going to see a perfect church. But we're going to see a church that we should model, that we should imitate. Imitate them in their evangelism, their love for the Lord, their love for one another, and how to walk in sanctification as we live in light of and in anticipation of the coming of the Lord. Preparing ourselves for that great day. That's what that's what it is. That's what the Christian life is. We're living. We're living, but we're always looking forward. We're looking forward to the coming of Christ, to his return, and to the glories that we will experience with him eternally. And that's what this church is doing. And again, it is a great model for us, and I pray that we take heed to it as we go through this letter. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. What rich truths it brings forth. What a blessing it is. Thank you for the blessing it is to your people. Lord, I pray that those who heard, who do not believe, will believe in your name that they will walk in your statutes. Lord, for us who have believed that we will look at what you have done through this church in Thessalonia, that we may be encouraged by it, that we too would imitate them, that we would remember the gospel and what you have done in our lives and how you have worked in this church at Green Run, and will continue to work. Father, let us be emboldened. Let us be encouraged. Let us live with joy the gospel. And then as it is deeply rooted in our own lives, that we will take it out into the world, just as Paul did, and Silas and Timothy and many other co-laborers and planted churches just as the one in Thessalonians. 